Hello and welcome to the Stockout. This is your show at Freight Waves for all things related to the CPG industry. Um, I'm your host, Mike Bowdendistel. I'm the head of Intermodal Solutions here at Freight Waves. And this is the show where we set aside 26 minutes to go over um, what, what I think is relevant for CPG companies that go to Freight Waves, that subscribe to our data, all of those things, um, try to highlight the things I think are most relevant for the CPG companies, whether they're just in the news items, items that our um, you know, editorial staff is, is writing, or, or just uh, data uh, that comes up in our uh, data product. So try to put all those things together in sort of one package that a CPG a company can digest uh, pretty, pretty easily. Uh, today, I'll talk about the latest inflation data and some good news on food inflation and what those implications are for the CPG industry, which I think on balance is uh, positive, um, even though food is uh, certainly inflating a lot more than other uh, products. I'll talk about those things. I'll talk about the latest developments in Kroger's bid to acquire Albertsons, potential for CPG impacts. I know I've talked about that in previous shows. There always seem to be sort of incremental uh, developments there. And I think those developments are going to be with us for you know, the next uh, year plus, depending on how long it takes to get that um, deal approved. Um, and then I'll give a little bit of a preview of what I'm going to be writing about this week for the Stockout newsletter, uh, which if you, um, you know, are subscribed, you can go to www.freightwaves.com forward slash the Stockout. And this week I'll be talking about uh, Walmart and Target's earnings. And I'll focus specifically on uh, the implications for uh, CPG. I think those things could be interesting. I mean, I think one of the big um, events so far in uh, the world of uh, freight transportation has been the, the inventory levels of some of those big retailers. Walmart and Target have come down from where they were, still at a high level, um, and you've seen it actually higher on, on Amazon. So I'll talk about the, the retails, and then I'll, then I'll talk a little bit about just what's happening in the freight market um, as far as our data is uh, showing um, some interesting things uh, there. But first, I'll give a shout out to our sponsor, which uh, today's sponsor is RJW Logistics Group. RJW owns and operates every step of the middle mile. As an asset-based integrated logistics company, they offer a full suite of retail supply chain solutions under one roof, including industry-leading retail consolidation that consistently delivers over 98% on time and in full month after month to many retailers. RJW's programs offer global suppliers control and transparency, helping them improve in-stocks, achieve retailer compliance, grow market share, and increase sales. Visit rjwgroup.com to optimize your supply chain today. So big shout out. Um, thank you to RGW Logistics Group for uh, supporting this uh, content on the CPG uh, industry. Uh, I've talked with them a couple times on the show. They have a lot of good ideas for achieving on time and in full um, uh, compliance with the, with the retailers. Um, and with that, I'll talk about today's first topic, and uh, really the, the pace of food inflation Declines in October, which I think is is good news. I mean, you look at overall this the CPI still up seven point seven percent, core CPI up six point three percent year over year. You know that set off the big uh, stock market rally last week on Thursday, which is the biggest bounce in about two and a half years. And it was um, you know really uh, sort of a, a, an expectation that maybe this means the Fed doesn't have to keep raising uh, interest rates ad infinitum, which would be nice. I would argue that the core number, that 6.3%, is maybe less important than the overall, uh, just because uh, food and energy have been such uh, a big uh, component of, of people's uh, you know, budgets. And that seems to be supported by um, you know, surveys, when they have surveys of consumers like this Nielsen IQ survey, if you take a look at that. And sort of interestingly, the biggest concern that most consumers have 
is food prices, uh, food food in, uh, inflation up uh, 10.9% year over year in this latest report. Uh, food away from home or food food at home up 12.4%, food away from home up 8.6%. So if you're primarily someone who buys groceries, still uh, have uh, you know, a bill that's uh, you know, well into the double digits uh, percentage-wise ahead of, of where it, it was, have an interesting chart on retail uh, sales uh, for food and, and and beverage, and so what I'm what I'm showing there is uh, in in white is uh, basically groceries, sort of food and beverage that you buy at, at the store, and you see in that in that white line that big spike up in March of 2020 as everyone stayed home and you know did all the the shopping at Costco, loaded up, and what's interesting is even though everything's opened up now. We're almost back to where it was, uh, where um, shop, where, where food and beverage sales are at retail locations, where they were in March of 2020, when that's all people were eating. We're about three percent within about three percent of March 2020. The blue line on that chart is uh, retail sales at food service locations, so basically restaurants and bars. And you see those, you know, way above where it was, you know, prior to the pandemic levels, actually 28% above February 2020, which I think is a fair comparison because that's sort of right before everything was shut down. So, um, you know, spending almost as much at food and uh, food location at, at retail stores on food, just because the, the prices have been up double digits two years in a row um, for a lot of products. And then at uh, bars and restaurants up almost 30% where, where they were before the pandemic. So, so really food both in, in the home and outside the home taking a much bigger you know, chunk out of uh, consumers' budgets. I think if there's good news in the latest um, data uh, for inflation, the month-over-month increase in food was only 0.6% increase. That's actually the smallest uh, in, in 11 months, sort of from September to October up 0.6%, but that also drives home that that's the smallest increase in 11 months, sort of every month, the food prices have been higher than the previous month. And so I think that's part of why uh, food prices are on uh, top of consumers' minds, you know, sort of unlike, you know, gasoline, which at least goes up and down, food prices seemingly only go only go higher. Hopefully we're getting to an, an end of that. Of course, a lot of CPG companies specifically, their prices are up more like 15% year over year, thing, you know, that one category, cereal and baked goods up about 15.9% year over year. It seems to be um, kind of a, a social media pu- uh, punching bag right now as the cereal companies for raising prices so much. But but really a lot of that, they're not seeing better margins. The margins are still thinner. It's um, They have you know costs higher for everything from ingredients to labor to packaging. Uh, a lot of those companies' market shares have been um, you know going up and down sort of if they can keep those products on stock. So, um, so, so, so really a lot of... Um, you know things happening there. Um, you know with with with, with uh, CPG companies have another um, you know chart here on the comparing the CPI uh, to the PPI. So um, and, and that's one where the the consumer price index. It's so consumer price index. So those are the retail uh, facing uh, prices. So the prices that consumers see. Those are in white. And as as bad as those have been, as much as those have inflated. You look over the past, let's say, two years, they haven't gone up as much as the producer price index in green. That's the, the, the PPI. So sort of throughout 2021, producer price index is, is, is faster. That was true for, through the first half of 2022. So um, the result is that manufacturers have had thinner margins. And um, you know, certainly the CPG is one of the industries where that has been 
true, most of the CPG companies have thinner margins than they did, you know, before the before the pandemic, and, and really certainly before they have in, in in 2020, where a lot of them had had, had pretty good years in 2020. Uh, but uh, you've had a couple of years where there's been um, you know, difficulty with with margins, and really that's been because you know the components of of, of the uh, uh, cost of sales to a CPG company would be in, ingredients, which makes up maybe two thirds of it, and then the rest of it would be you know packaging, labor, manufacturing, um, and, and maybe transportation costs. All those things have been have been rising, and, and maybe the, the companies get a break on transportation costs here. Shortly, but I think a lot of those other components are, are, are pretty in, in inflationary still. Um, maybe we get a break on ingredients with uh, the commodity costs starting to, to come down. So a lot to watch there. Um, keep uh, everyone updated on those things and move on to topic number two here, which is Kroger and Albertson's uh, deal to impact uh, uh, CPG tactics. So it's, it's getting to be more clear that the Kroger-Albertson's deal is going to be a political football you know, I think you know the, the consolidation. I think a lot of people look at that and they have this snap judgment that you know few, uh, fewer grocery chains means it's going to be higher uh, food prices for consumers. You know, at a time when everyone's concerned about food prices, I'm not sure that's true because I think um, you know really their biggest competition is Walmart, and if they can make the that uh, company more streamlined, maybe they can actually compete with Walmart and maybe it causes the prices to go down in and may, maybe in, in just in certain uh, locations where they really do compete with Walmart and other places like a big city, maybe they only compete with other traditional grocery stores. So it could um, maybe prices differ by uh, region, but the sort of big thing that happened in the last you know week with Kroger is the court in Washington state, which is Albertson's hometown blocked a planned $4 billion special dividend. That would have been $6.85 a share to per shareholders. And that's a $4 billion dividend out of 11 billion market cap. So um, the Washington state uh, pre- prevented uh, Albertsons from putting a lot of cash in the share, in the, in the pockets of uh, shareholders. I think um, you know, part of the reason uh, was they were looking at that and saying, well, this would maybe make the, the uh, regulatory oversight of the deal less strict because Presumably, I guess the argument goes, you can make the argument that if Albertsons is financially troubled, then you have to allow Kroger to, to take it over. Otherwise, there's just going to be less grocery competition. I'm not sure that's true. You sort of look at where the leverage ratios were, and it would have went, gone from like one times net debt to EBITDA to two times net debt to EBITDA. Still seems like that would have been a reasonable leverage ratio when you compare it to the um, the, the peer group. So. You know that's something that um, you know. It, it, it seems like uh, maybe that was a political move in uh, in, in, in Washington State, but 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 clearly a, a deal that is is going to be you know closely looked at. Um, you know, Albertson still thinks or Kroger thinks they can you know complete that deal by divesting anywhere from 100 to 350 uh, Albertsons locations. Um, but I think that's uh, you know going to be a while before we actually uh, you know know that. I think it was interesting some of the discourse around that deal, and one of the things that um, has been discussed is the enhancements to uh, the, the the data capabilities that Kroger will now have. And Kroger will now have uh, capable data on about 100 million consumers, so pretty much everyone in the United States who shops at traditional you know grocery stores. And I think that's valuable to CPG companies. Um, I was talking to a CPG company the other day that is making inroads in a a prepared beverage um, similar to Starbucks ready shot or the, the Starbucks double shot that comes in the, the can. That was sort of their main competition. 
and sort of topic came up, could you market it you know, directly to the consumers who you know buy that competing product, maybe give them you know, like 50 cents a can or something really cheap to get them in. And, you know, this company was really confident in how that product would taste. And so thought that once they get that conquest business, they wouldn't go back to the Starbucks. But, you know, if you have that data, you know exactly who buys those canned coffee beverages, you know, really valuable. And and, and I think a lot of that data is is valuable, you know, in, in, in other areas as well. I think, you know, if you know what a, a household buys at Kroger, you know a lot about that that household. I'd like to talk about how you know if you know and they know that someone bought you know baby formula five years ago. You pretty you can be pretty confident they have a five year old and they're going to be looking at preschools and doing everything that a that a five year parent of five year old would do. So I think um, you know the, the data thing is 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 interesting. I think a lot of the demographic differences between what you think of as a traditional sort of Kroger customer and Albertsons is maybe more different than. You would think, I mean, Kroger, really heavy concentration in the Midwest. Albertsons, heavier concentration in urban parts of the Northeast and the West Coast. They have a lot of them in um, Seattle, Denver, and in New England. There are some places where there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of overlap, like here in Dallas. But you sort of look at um, the, the Albertsons shoppers. I think they're, they're they're more urban. They're more likely to use public transportation. There's a larger percentage of Hispanic and Asian shoppers at Albertson. So I think CPG companies, you know, are going to have to maybe rethink the size of the products that they have at those various locations and think, well, more people at Albertson's locations now use public transportation. Um, maybe they're younger. They're going to have different preferences. Maybe they want smaller, you know, package sizes. Um, you know, so potentially this is a CPG company dealing with a, a larger you know, behemoth that's going to be, you know, more than 10% of total grocery sales, but maybe there's also an opportunity to get in front of some new, uh, some new customers if they're stronger with one uh, grocery store and, and not the other. So a lot to, to think about with that uh, merger still. And before I move on uh, to talk a little bit about freight, I'll just give a lot, another shout out here to RJW Logistics Group. Um, are, you, are you assessing the advantages of prepaid versus collect freight management for delivery into retail? RJW's retail consolidation program consistently consistently delivers over 98% on time and in full to ensure stronger shelf presence, increased in stocks, retailer compliance, and overall retail supply chain improvement. Visit rjwgroup.com to speak with a retail logistics expert about the advantages of RJW's program and to make the best of your business decisions. So big thanks to RJW Logistics Group. I would encourage you to reach out to them or also have a couple of uh, episodes on the site where I talked to, to uh, their CEO, Kevin Williamson, about um, you know, their capabilities. Um, I actually learned a lot from you know, talking with, with them. Um, so next topic here is sort of what's to, what to watch this, this week in retailers' earnings. So Walmart reports tomorrow and Tuesday, Target uh, reports um, the following day, you know, Wednesday. And uh, really sort of the big topic this year has kind of been the, the retail um, inventory levels where you know, go back you know, a couple quarters ago, Walmart's inventory was like 35% higher than uh, the year ago period. Target was 45% higher. Target, you know, launched that big initiative to, to downsize its um, retail, you know, inventory. And, and that's been a big thing. I mean, it was interesting now that now you have Amazon whose inventory levels are almost 60% above uh, last year and just saw that the news came out, they're going to cut something like 10,000 employees, which remarkably is less than 1% of their total um, global workforce. And I was like, wow, they really have, you know, a million 
employees sort of really cause you to put things in, in perspective when um, you think about Amazon having a million employees. But I think that's sort of the big thing I'm mean, looking for, you know, first is maybe inventory levels and maybe, you know, breaking those inventory levels out between general merchandise, which we know is high. And that's where a lot of the discounting has been things like apparel, uh, hard lines, furniture, those type of things, electronics. That's where the inventory levels are high for food items. It's really a different situation where, by and large, there's not too many food items. And a lot of the CPG companies are talking about having their products in stock about 90% of the time, which is really below a targeted level. So it's simultaneously, it seems like inventory levels are too high and, or, and, and too low, depending on which type of products you're talking about. Um, also, I'm be watching closely for any discussion uh, that the, the retailers have with about negotiations with suppliers. You probably saw the big uh, you know, Wall Street Journal article over the weekend where they talked about uh, Walmart getting tough with their vendors if they aren't tough you know, already. With, with CPG, it's, it's interesting because CPG have, companies have gone to retailers you know, very frequently over the past two years. I mean, really since their costs really started inflating you know, sharply at the beginning of 2021, instead of going to them, let's say every year, Every six months, it's been you know at a, at a much more frequent interval. It seems like now, with commodity prices off their high, the retailers are not going to be so accepting of uh, increases in uh, costs from the the vendors. I think uh, the CPG companies are going to have a little bit harder time passing those through. Uh, did like what Nestle said when they reported, and they said that they got their price increases through the retail channel very early. And it seemed like they were anticipating that uh, as soon as um, you know, commodity prices would start to come down, that the that the retailers wouldn't accept price increases. I think the the maybe the relations between between CPG companies and retailers gotten to be a little bit um, you know more contentious. Uh, retailers doing more things like kind of doing their own in- investigation of what should the the, the prices actually um, be in terms of uh, do the commodity cost, packaging cost, transportation costs really support. A higher, um, you know, price that's that's going to be on 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 shelves, and so looking for that, and also looking for any clues that Walmart has to offer the the health of the consumer. I think when you look at, you know, CPG companies, they're you know have often talked about, you know, low elasticities or at least elasticities that are less than historical averages. Um, from you know Walmart's perspective, I mean, I think maybe, uh, you know, you could see something maybe a little bit different because. They do have a lot of customers that are, um, you know, middle and lower income uh, customers, and, and and they're going to be more sensitive to things like, you know, rising you know, food prices, rising you know, gasoline prices. So that'll be interesting, and I'll write that up for the Stockout newsletter, um, you know, later in the week. Move on to the next topic here. Um, often like to talk about one of the articles uh, or one or more of the articles that are on FreightWaves.com. And uh, one that caught my eye today was imports from China falling faster than other countries. This was uh, written by uh, Greg Miller, who um, you know knows the uh, global uh, shipping industry uh, inside and out. A great way to follow him is a great way to to follow um, you know this 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 industry. And you know some interesting stats here: China's share of U.S. containerized imports fell from forty one percent in February to thirty five percent in October. Um, still more than a sixth of China's export value comes from U.S. purchases, imports from China, essentially flat from October, flat in October from, uh, so so imports overall, um, basically flat from in October from September, but imports from China fell 5.5%. So point is that 
China's share of U.S. imports is declining, and um, that's being made up for um, by a lot of the countries in uh, Southeast Asia, sort of Thailand, Taiwan, in addition to Korea and uh, Japan. And so, you know, would say that this is a part of a longer-term trend where China is going to have, you know, represent a little bit lower uh, portion of the volume of U.S. imports. There was a lot of discussion on that. On F3, had um, you know, numerous guest speakers, keynote speakers, talking about reshoring, and I do think you know reshoring from you know Asia to uh, Central America, South America, Mexico, even the U.S. and under automated circumstances, um, you know, is going to be a big deal. But I think a, 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 maybe even the bigger trend, or maybe more impactful trend, is is is, is moving that production to um, Southeast Asia. There was one company that we did a a research report, custom research report for here at FreightWaves, and they looked at manufacturing a particular consumer product, consumer durable product, in both China and uh, Vietnam. And their assessment was that the Vietnam quality was higher and more consistent, and uh, but it was more expensive. But they were willing to ha- take that you know more expensive um, you know option in order to have a higher, more consistent product and. You know, the reason why if you're um, you know, a CPG company, why you should care about this, let's say you're a CPG company who only manufactures in the U.S., sells in the U.S., doesn't do any importing, it really does have a big impact on U.S. Uh, freight demands and uh, you know, balance of, tra- of, of trade flows and, and, and those things. So um, you know, if you think about this from you know, a situation where um, manufacturing moves from China to Southeast Asia, those containers are much more likely to go through the Suez Canal to the eastern U.S. ports, and that in turn means that there's more demand for you know to to move goods in in those geographies and less demand to move rail intermodal because those those eastern uh, consumption centers are much closer to port locations on the eastern part of the U.S. You know, containers that go from China through um, you know th- across the Pacific to let's say L.A you know, 65, 70% of that goes rail intermodal. If it goes through um, Suez, which, you know, some, most from Southeast Asia would go through Suez and, and some from China also, depending on what part of China it, it is, that would be more like 20, 25% would go rail intermodal. And, you know, having more go to the East Coast ports, that would create more, um, more balance in the network rather than such a large portion going across the Pacific. And so that can actually lead to greater opportunities for, uh, domestic shippers to move uh, goods that are, let's say, manufactured uh, domestically in the Western U.S. to move those to Eastern consumption centers. So, you know, all these trends I think are very relevant to uh, domestic uh, manufacturers as well as uh, as as importers. So, um, that's something we try to encourage at Freight Waves is don't just look at the data that's most relevant to you. Uh, look at the other um, you know modes and and sort of what those say about the the mode that that you follow. Uh, most uh, closely. So, um, you know, I have a chart here on van outbound tender rejection index in uh, LA. And, you know, this is is part of the reason why, uh, you know, really, th- this is a, a loose market. So this what this shows is that driving carriers in for, for outbound LA loads only rejecting 2.7% of loads. And, you know, normally, it would be much higher than that, or at least be increasing this time of year. You see, even you know, in in, in orange, 2019, weak year for freight. There were a lot of carrier bankruptcies that year because the market was so weak. Even then, you saw 
you know, uptick towards the end of the year. Not sure that's going to happen this year. I think one of the big themes from uh, transportation analyst calls, lack of a peak season or a muted peak season, choose your words, but um, you know, it's going to continue to stay to stay weak. Um, you know, final topic here is international intermodal volumes are very related to that last part, um, seems to be declining with imports. Uh, I have a chart here on the total outbound international rail uh, container volume, um, you know, outbound from Los Angeles. And so in, in white, those are um, 40 foot containers, primarily 40 foot and 20 foot that comes off of the, the ports of uh, Port of LA. And you see how those have declined sort of seemingly right in line with the maritime import shipments clearing customs, which are in blue. There was a disconnect in the late summer, early fall, where you see that uh, the uh, intermodal volume held up better during that period of time than the import shipments. But I think a lot of that was just sort of clearing backlogs, you know, working through um, the, the the containers that are in queue, sort of waiting to get on a ship. And now those seem to be, you know, both uh, declining. Um, interesting write-up from uh, my colleague Henry Byers, who said that Port of uh, Long Beach only one to report in October so far, and their volume was down 23.6% uh, year over year in a 15% month over month decline. So imports are falling into the West Coast um, and uh, expect that to be true for most of the ports, maybe with the exception of the Port of Houston, uh, which might be the only one that shows growth in October, although that's a, a relatively small port when you talk about the sort of the behemoths like you know LA, Long Beach, um, New York, New Jersey, et cetera. So We'll be watching all these trends, and if anyone would like to reach out to me, uh, feel free to do so at mboudendistal at freightwaves.com, or please sign up for my newsletter at www.freightwaves.com forward slash the stockout. Hope everyone has a great uh, Monday.